Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been able to do a podcast episode together. We did two weeks ago, we did a rerun to prep for some of the Pauline epistles that we're going to be doing. And then last week, I really enjoyed your leadership podcast that you did for us. Well, thanks. I just uh, have a number of those things on my mind and my reading and so forth. And every now and then we sprinkle, try to sprinkle that in and hopefully it's useful to people. Well, I've, I've been I've been talking to the powers that be. I'm not sure if I'm at liberty to say this, but there's been some growing demand that you would do more of your leadership podcasts maybe in 2020. Ah, well, we might just have to make a series out of that. So we might have to we might have to do that and uh, have a few episodes together, either <laughs> on a different day or something like that. But I really yeah. enjoyed that. It's really helpful for me to get to listen to, and I think it, it has been too, especially from the emails and texts and stuff we've gotten for that one. I think it's been really helpful. Um, as always, if you want to ask a question or respond, or uh, we've gotten a couple of good ideas for podcasts that we're going to be hopefully getting to uh, before the end of the year, go ahead and email us at info at soweespeak.com. We always love to hear from you guys. This week, uh, we're going to do Second Timothy, and it's a book that is at once really, really familiar and also really, really impactful. It's one of those books that every time I come back to it, I see it in a new light, and I don't know if it's if it's this way for you, but I probably have spent more time studying Second Timothy with other people than any other book in the Bible. And I, I think that's partly because it's such a short book. It's a it's a really practical book, which we're going to talk about. But two, for some reason, it's gotten into the culture as the discipleship book. So if you're going to disciple somebody, Second Timothy is really up there on the list, at least as far as the circles that I've run in. Is that the same for you or different? No, it's the same. In fact, the pastoral epistles, letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, I'd have to say that I have studied those with people far, far more than I've just read and studied it myself. And particularly 2 Timothy, I think, because of its circumstances, which we'll get into in a moment, is just perfect for discipleship. It is Paul speaking to a younger a Christian preacher. It just sets itself up perfectly for the kinds of topics that are so relevant for us. And I will say, this may be a little bit of a cynical take, but among the pastoral, Second Timothy is by far the easiest to read with somebody else. You don't have to deal with First Timothy talking about uh, what can women do and not do in the church, which is a brewing <laughs> uh, argument in evangelicalism constantly. Right. And in Titus, there's a lot of background stuff. You don't have to deal with all Cretans being liars and, and thieves <laughs> and, and evil people either. I mean, Second Timothy is by far the easiest of the three to talk through and walk through together. True. Um, and I, I think it's a foundation stone for the Paul and Timothy kinds of discipleship relationships that I've really appreciated, look for. Uh, I, I think some of the greatest growth I've seen in my own life and in those of others is when they found somebody to do some intentional one-on-one discipleship with. And Second Timothy is a template for that kind of relationship. Right. So let's dive in. We, we follow a pretty similar pattern on, on these podcasts. We're going to walk through some background issues, outline the letter, and then talk about a few things that maybe deserve a little bit more discussion. The background of all three pastorals, First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus, and maybe we should say this, the reason that they're called the pastorals is not just because their content is pastoral, because there are other letters in the New Testament, I would point to Colossians specifically, and then the letters of John, that are Mm -hmm. just as pastoral in content 
as 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. The reason that they're called the pastorals is because they are from Paul to young pastors that he has sent to specific places to continue the ministry that he started. So in the case of Timothy, Timothy has been stationed in Ephesus. And there's a little bit of dispute in the background of how exactly Timothy got there and what exactly his role is in the church at Ephesus. And so the the place that we would need to go to think about that would be in Acts chapter 20. So after Paul plants the church in Ephesus, spends some time there, he, on his way to where he knows he will be arrested, he stops and he calls for the elders of the Ephesian church. It's unclear, and, and you may know this, it's unclear to me in the literature whether or not that is the moment that Timothy has made this overseer or if that comes slightly later. Uh, but at some point, they commission Timothy, mm-hmm. and he is given a leadership role in the church of Ephesus. And now Paul, some years later, is writing to him, encouraging him to do the work that he left him there to do in the church. It appears that he did indeed stay there. I, I agree. I don't know when he was was there if it was during Acts 20, that incident, or if it was later. But Eusebius, a later church historian, records, and again, this is a tradition, that uh, he was killed, he was martyred in Ephesus. So apparently Mm -hmm. he did stay there, did complete the task there, and was killed for preaching in Ephesus. You know, Ephesus is a really interesting city in the New Testament. If you think about the hierarchy of New Testament cities, Maybe we should do a segment on this. I I would probably rank the New Testament cities this way. Most important would have to be Jerusalem, just by default. Obviously, Uh uh, the epicenter of everything that goes on in the New Testament is Jerusalem. Outside of Jerusalem, I would argue that probably the most important city would be Antioch. Agree. Where Paul's missionary base is. He and Barnabas go there. They teach. They're set apart there. They go on their missionary journeys. They return there. Maybe the third most important city would be Ephesus. And and maybe you can make an argument that it's the second most important city, especially as time goes on in the New Testament. You have Paul go there. He stays there. He treats it as a big uh, cosmopolitan base for his ministry. He returns there. He leaves Timothy there. Later on, we see that John does ministry there. He not only writes from the area, probably around there with the epistles, uh, either before or after his exile, depending on how you date those. And you see a letter written there from Jesus himself in the book of Revelation to the the church at Ephesus. So Ephesus gets a lot of play in comparison to some of the other cities in the New Testament. So maybe I would rank it second, maybe I would rank it third, but it's certainly one of the most important cities in the New Testament. Well, it makes a lot of sense to see a lot of ministry being done out of there. When you read Colossians and Philemon, the you know kind of twin letters, you realize that the interior of Turkey, Ephesus was on the coast of Turkey, what's modern-day Turkey, that whole interior had been evangelized, and it appears largely by disciples, 
that were made mm-hmm. in Ephesus during Paul's initial, what, two years, maybe a little more than two years he stayed there initially. And during that time, you had these young pastors who take off and go back to their hometowns or they go into the interior. So, for example, Paul's writing to, ch- to churches that he did not found. And I think mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense that Ephesus could be a launching point. And in fact, Turkey what was called the Roman province of Asia, as you follow on after the New Testament ends into the 100s, you realize that Turkey is, that area has strong churches for a long time. Mm -hmm. So it really made an effect. The other reason would be why so many people today are homed out of, uh, let's say, airport hubs. It's Mm -hmm. a whole lot easier to get out of New York City and go to Europe from there than it is from, let's say, Oklahoma City or somewhere else. And so Ephesus being a major port, it was very easy, relatively speaking, to travel to Jerusalem or to travel to Mm -hmm. Greece. And so it makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways that Ephesus would have been an important city and a hub. Yeah, you fly direct from Ephesus International to Colossae, Thessalonica, Jerusalem. Um, It makes sense. With that said, it makes sense that Paul would entrust the oversight of the ministry in in Ephesus to his most trusted disciple. And even as we're talking about this Paul and Timothy relationship, um, I want to, I want to push back on one of the common notions in the way that we think about Timothy as a person. Oftentimes in intros to first and second Timothy, you see People characterize Timothy as quiet and subdued, and Mm -hmm. um, we take a couple of verses and mash them all together that Timothy was kind of a coward and a scaredy cat, and so Paul is constantly telling him, hey, you don't have a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And and Timothy gets this perpetual little brother syndrome. That's not actually what you see in the New Testament and I, I would argue that's not actually what you see in Second Timothy either. Now, does Timothy have the daring, bold uh, streak in his personality that Paul does? Probably not. I would say that uh, right. Timothy. If we're looking at Timothy's enneagram, it's got to be either like a <laughs> two, four, six, or nine. I don't. Yeah. I don't think he's he's uh, the same as Paul. But I don't think that he was a coward. I don't think that he was a scaredy cat. I don't think that he was um, as timid as we make him out to be. And in fact, at this point in their ministry lives, I think that Timothy and Paul probably saw themselves more as equals than they did as, even though he says son in the faith, than as as the common relationship we think about. Yeah, I think by this time, Timothy has sort of grown into his ministry. But Mm -hmm. back to uh, the Enneagram. So you've kind of pegged Timothy. How about Paul? What's your what's your take on Paul's number? I'm having a hard time deciding if Paul is an eight or a one because on the one hand he obviously is bold and powerful, but at the same time he has a lot of of um, non resourceful one energy going. It's there's there's right. one right way, there is one wrong way, and if you're in the wrong way, you need to change to the right way. I could see him being a little bit of a, a neat freak. I could see that in Paul's ministry, but uh, this this is reading a little bit into the text, probably. Yeah, well, I'm I'm thinking a pretty strong eight there, and as fa- matter of fact, I think there's someone on this podcast that's an eight, and uh, it's kind of yeah. easy to see the similarities there. Uh, that's very self-observant of you to 
to notice that about him. <laughs> that would be, yeah, that would be you. Yeah, and so I do think uh, you're right about Timothy. For example, First Timothy four twelve, and again, First Timothy, Second Timothy, written at very different times. But he mm-hmm. has that famous passage of "Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but be an right. example to the believers." And I do think that in that culture, it would have been natural for Timothy to be. Oh, a little deferential to older people, and it's a, puts him in an awkward position to be say say he's in his twenties and he's teaching you know older men in their forties and fifties. So I think that's what you're seeing in that letter. You're mm-hmm. not seeing any inherent timidity on the part of Timothy himself. I think you're you're right about that. The the last thing I wanted to add on uh, uh, by way of introduction to Timothy himself is is age. So I, I think it's tempting to read 2 Timothy and think that Timothy is maybe in his 20s or early 30s. I don't think that's very likely. When you see Paul and Timothy meet each other for the first time, Timothy seems as though he may be a late teenager, possibly early 20s. He's young. Paul comes along uh, in, in his trip through Lystra and Derby, and he takes him under his wing. Timothy wants to go with him. So... It's hard to date this because there are some the some pluses and minuses in Paul's years between his conversion and his missionary journeys. But conservatively speaking, what date would you give that? That's a that's a great point that you just made. If you think about uh when Timothy is converted, let's think 50-51 AD, and let's mm-hmm. think about 2 Timothy being written, I know you're going to get into this, but let's say 67 or 68. Mm-hmm. So we're now talking 17 years later. So even if he's a teenager, say he's 18, right. uh, I'm just guessing here, but say he's 18, well, now we're talking to a 35-year-old. So I yeah. think your point's well made. Yeah, we're talking between 35 and 40, I would say. And remember, too, in that world, 35 to 40 was the prime of adult years. It wasn't the, the beginning part of a career uh, the way we think of it now. So Timothy is a grown man. He is probably some kind of uh, lead elder, bishop-type leader in Ephesus in the same way that Paul was amongst a series of churches. And uh, I want to talk for a minute about why this letter was written and when. And as you've already as you've already hinted at, Paul is finishing his career after he gets arrested in Jerusalem, going through a series of trials and imprisonments and mm-hmm. disputes with Jewish leaders, and and he ends up in Rome. And so at the end of the book of Acts, we we see Paul in Rome, but he is on a house arrest kind of uh, arrangement where people are coming and going, and he's preaching. So there's a lot of theories about how the end of Paul's life takes place after what we read in the book of Acts. So it's theologically and textually significant that, the, that, that Acts ends with the word unhindered. Mm. So he's preaching the gospel without hindrance. But it's pretty clear by the time you get to 2 Timothy that is no longer the case. He does not appear to be under house arrest with that kind of freedom. He appears to be in something closer to a Roman prison, which is a fancy word for a hole in the ground. He's cold. He is not optimistic. Um, he has been deserted. He is ashamed of the situation he's in. None of those things indicate that he's in the same situation as he was in the end of the book of Acts. 
Agreed. And so I, I just want to throw out two possibilities here for how that happens. Some people see one Roman imprisonment. So he goes from being on house arrest. The trials don't go very well. He gets thrown into a prison. He is sentenced to death, and he's killed likely under Nero in the late 60s. Second idea would be he gets released from the house arrest in Rome. He goes west to Spain, basically, which he says he wants to do in the, in the book to the Romans. And then at some point he is imprisoned again in Rome. And this time it is a much more brutal imprisonment. The trial does not go well. And he's put to death at the end of that imprisonment. Um, what, what's your thought on that? Well, I think the chronology you just outlined seems very likely. Uh, the pros are here are just a couple of obvious ones. In the book of Philippians, he talks about being imprisoned, and his tone is very positive. And he, in fact, he seems confident that he will be released. Mm-hmm. Let me just dovetail this into some history. So at that time, he's being held as a Roman citizen in Rome. And the Jews have a, an issue against him. He's being held uh, very in house arrest, which is because he's a citizen. He's being treated really well. And the Romans really have no particular issue with Christians. At this point, they think they're just another sect of the Jews. So it appears to me very likely that he does get released. He said he wanted to go to Spain. It's likely that he did. Now, the con to that, what's hard to understand is we don't have any records of him being in Spain. We don't have any letters. And so it's there's a little bit of a black hole there. But the reason I think that's still most likely is by the time you get to Second Timothy, his tone changes. In chapter 4, he talks about the time for my departure has come. That's very radically different than the Philippians passage. And in between these two events, something I think significant has happened. The Emperor Nero was blamed for setting fire to some of the slums of Rome in which a lot of Roman citizens were killed, and he denied it. And of course, when you read the uh, when you read the Roman historians of the period, nobody really believed that. So he decided to blame the Christians, and that was politically expedient. And so, during the latter part, the last few years of his reign, Nero killed himself in 68 A.D. So the last several years. He was very active in persecuting the Christians because it was expedient to do so. It does seem likely that if Paul were rearrested in this period, he would no longer get the kind of treatment he did originally. So it makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense. That's maybe a little long-winded, but it seems that the historical uh, evidence points toward the chronology you laid out. An early imprisonment, release, did something, rearrested comes back to a far less favorable environment in Rome, is imprisoned in far worse circumstances, and Mm -hmm. then, as the tradition says, is then beheaded. I think that makes sense. That's that's the way I would lean. Of course, the, the other, the alternative to what you're saying about Philippians is there are those who, who, and I, I guess you can, you can, take a one Roman or two Roman imprisonment and still hold this view, but the prison epistles are usually encompassing Philippians, Colossians, sometimes Ephesians, and Philemon. We know that Colossians and Philemon were probably delivered together. Mm -hmm. They are written from prison. It's unclear what prison Paul is in. And it's interesting to read the commentators start to do a bunch of uh, Google mapping to figure out how far messengers would have needed to travel, how far um, 
you know, each stop would have been from each other. Some people propose that those were written not from Rome, but from a prior imprisonment, either in Caesarea or somewhere uh, right. similar to that. It's, it's very difficult to know. For our purposes, we're going to assume that 2 Timothy is written from a second Roman imprisonment in worse conditions, very near to the end of Paul's life. And most people assume that it's from the end of his life. That's why every time you see a Second Timothy series, it's called something like Last Words. Or uh, you <laughs> I know, wonder who did up, one called Last Words. Oh, I did that, yes. I mean, I think everybody everybody has done one. Uh, and if you pull up a series on Second Timothy and you listen to the first message, you're guaranteed to have somebody read some famous last words to right. whet your appetite for what you're about to hear from Paul. I know that's how I've taught it before, is you go find some really great last words from people, and uh, then you say, well, I'm going to tell you Paul's last words uh, here in this in this letter. Uh, there's a real finality to 2 Timothy, as if, you know, if Paul wanted to say a few things to Timothy, and he knew that it was the last things that he was going to get to say, if he knew it was the last thing he was going to get to share with him about ministry, these are the things that he was going to say. And so in that case, the cliche really is important uh, because I think Paul did have a sense that this was the last letter that he was going to get to write, although he did think that he was going to see Timothy again. So maybe these are right. just his second, second to last words. Second but to last there word, is yeah. a sense of there is a really important sense of finality in this letter. So let's walk through the outline of the letter and then jump into some of the more important parts to comment on. The opening of the letter is similar in some ways to Paul's letters. He begins with an address. He begins with his typical grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, Christ Jesus our Lord. He begins with a prayer. Um, and a lot of times Paul is telling you the contents of what he's been praying as opposed to actually praying at the beginning of these letters. Right. Um, and here it's very personal compared to Paul's other letters. He's been thanking God for Timothy's sincere faith and not just his faith. I always think this is an interesting part of this book, but the faith that dwelt first in his grandmother and his mother, which reminds us of when Paul met Timothy in Acts 16. One of the big disputes there was Timothy felt kind of spiritually homeless because mm -hmm. his mother was a Jew and his father was a Greek. He probably, because of that, was not accepted by either camp. As right. you know, he, he's not Jewish enough to be among the Jews, but because he's half Jewish, he's not really Greek. Right. And we see later he gets kind of the short end of the stick on that because Paul wants to take him to the temple and he's not Jewish enough. So Paul actually has him <laughs> circumcised right. uh, because of that. And you have to wonder it, what the after, you know, the, the post game conversation was like between Timothy and Titus on that, uh, given that the two of them would have traveled quite a bit. Timothy, half, half Greek, has to get circumcised to go in the temple. Titus, all Greek, Paul refuses to circumcise him to give in to, to demands. you got to think that Timothy gets the worst end of that deal, right? <laughs> yeah, Timothy's got to be wondering, am I really your favorite, uh, favorite child yeah. here? Yeah. This is how you treat the star pupil? Um, <laughs> but he has that heritage of faith. Probably his mother and his grandmother converted to Christianity. Uh, they taught him the scriptures from a young age. I think he and Paul probably had a pretty strong affinity then for the Jewish scriptures as their upbringing. And then seeing how Christ fulfills what they had learned as children now as Christians in their adult life. Mm -hmm. So what Paul does in the first chapter is encourage him on a personal level 
to continue the long heritage of that faith. So he says, um, he reminds him of the gospel. He talks to him about not being afraid, not being ashamed, um, gives him confidence, and then tells him to follow the pattern of sound words before he's going to introduce some of the problems that Timothy is facing. When I read this, I think this is one of the more personal parts of the New Testament. It's one of the areas where you see, a, you get a glimpse into Paul's love for one of his disciples. You get a very personal uh, part of Paul. What sticks out to you in this first chapter? Well, I love the greeting to Timothy in verse 2, my beloved child. And mm-hmm. when you read this, you realize this is like a father saying, my time is, is about finished and encouraging his son to continue on his work, and you'll see that as we as we walk through this. And I find one of the things that I think is really interesting is if you wrote your last letter, let's just assume for a moment this is the last mm-hmm. communication, and, and I agree with you, it may not have been, but Paul realizes his time is short. If you wrote something to your son, uh, to your child, and this was the last you could write, and it was as short as this. This is pretty short. What would you talk about? And that's why, mm-hmm. as we walk through these themes, I'd like our listeners to keep in mind that these are the things he thought most important to communicate to yeah. Timothy. But as far as chapter 1, I think it's really interesting in verse 8, he says, Therefore, speaking to Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, and don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering. And then again in verse 12, he says, But I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced he's able to guard until that day what he's entrusted to me. And then he gives an example in 16, speaking about Onesiphorus, who came and found him and is is ministering to him. He said, He was not ashamed of my chains. And just that, Mm -hmm. that phrase, not being ashamed, sort of dominates chapter one for me. Mm hmm. Yeah, this is a a bit of a longer discussion, but I think it's worth at least introducing here. When we read phrases like, don't be ashamed of me, you know, because I'm a prisoner, sometimes it's hard for us to understand what Paul means by that. Why would Timothy be ashamed of Paul? So we read the New Testament, we think that, oh, I mean, Paul is like Superman. Just to know Paul would be amazing. Right. But that probably was not the experience of a lot of people in the first century with Paul. And in fact, by the end of this book, we realized that was not the experience of most people with Paul. So early in his ministry, obviously, you have the pushback in his life because he was killing Christians. So everybody's a little nervous in Jerusalem. Hey, this guy was killing our relatives, and now he wants to preach and infiltrate the church. I'm not buying that. So Barnabas stands in for him. Uh Later in the book of Galatians, we see that he has problems with Peter. They do not get along because of the way that they see uh, what they worked out at the Jerusalem Council. Jews, Gentiles, Gentiles having to become Jews. Um, He has a rift with people that are claiming to represent James. Whether or not they did represent James or not is kind of an open discussion. Uh Um, He gets thrown in prison almost everywhere he goes. He gets beaten almost everywhere he goes. Mm-hmm. He uh, he has a lot of bad luck. Let's put it that way. Uh, he gets shipwrecked several times. Things don't go well. He 
lands, and after a shipwreck, he reaches in to gather some wood. He gets bit by a snake. I mean, he is uh, the kind of guy that if you're going to be around him, it's going to be exciting, but it's going to cost you almost everything to be a traveling companion of this guy. So then later in his life, we see that some of his companions begin to desert him, which we'll talk about more in chapter four. Um, Paul didn't have the magnetism that we sometimes attribute to him because of the reverence in reading this. He actually was a very costly person to be around and be associated with. Now, on top of that, they viewed prison slightly differently than we did in America today, but it has a lot of the connotations that we think about when we think about criminality. So saying somebody is in prison and saying someone is a criminal have different connotations for us. And when you say that somebody is a criminal, it's almost always a negative connotation. That's exactly what Paul would have been labeled in the first century. So we know that he went to jail for righteous reasons. But everyone else around him would have thought of him like he's a troublemaker, he's a criminal, he's rightly imprisoned. And there was some resistance to be associated with somebody like that because of that connotation. Exactly. You know, what you were just talking about makes me think of there's a school here in Oklahoma City that uh, educates the children of prisoners in our prison system. And Mm -hmm. that's what they focus on because there are some unique, obviously, issues there. But one thing when I'm there that I notice is that to a person, each one of these kids feels some amount of shame. That may be a little too strong, but you you clearly realize that even in our society, there's a stigma attached to it for a, a young boy or girl to say, well, my dad is in prison or my mom is in prison. Right. And we make an assumption then, oh, something's wrong. Something's gone wrong. And we mm-hmm. kind of assume, well, they probably did something wrong. And I don't see why we wouldn't expect the same thing to be true then, is that when they right. hear, you're preaching this message, oh, and by the way, the the preacher you got it from that trained you, he's in jail. So like, yeah, what went wrong here? Yeah. Your spiritual father is in prison everywhere he goes. Yep. Uh, that had to weigh on, on Timothy. And you know, you and I have both had the opportunity to preach in prisons and it's one of my favorite places in the whole world to preach is mm-hmm. in prisons. And I, I'll never forget the first time I went there, I was talking to one of the guys and it, it just dawned on me. If you read the new Testament, God has always had a passion for prison ministry, right. whether it's in uh, whether it's through the early days of the disciples being in prison and and being broken out of prison, whether it's Paul and his companions and their ministry converting the Philippian jailer and and the worship service that they had in prison, he and Silas, uh, or whether it's the exile that John was in at the end of uh, of the book of uh, Revelation. God has always had a passion to preach to prisoners, um, and he has done a lot of prison ministry through the ages. But we need to understand that Paul being in prison was something that would have been shameful for Timothy, not just because of the connotation of it, but because uh, adoption and heritage and association were even more important then than they right. were, than they are now in the honor-shame culture of the first century. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting to me, there's so much prison ministry going on now and absolutely applaud it. But the original uh, prison ministry came about by becoming a prisoner. I don't think we want to do it that way. But Paul almost had to do prison ministry because he was in prison so much. Yes, he was doing prison prison ministry from the inside. From the inside. So chapter one, we get this personal charge to Timothy not to be ashamed of him. He, He 
reminds him of some of the hope of the gospel, the steadfastness of the gospel. And in verse 15, we get the first glimpse into what is a recurring theme in 2 Timothy, and that is abandonment, false teaching, and harm that have been done by other people to Paul and his ministry. So how would you like to be one of these two guys, uh, Figelis and Hermogenes? I mean, just imagine... Imagine that they're up in heaven at this point. They, they really turned it around after this letter was read aloud and after Timothy exhorted them, and they uh, end up going to heaven. How many people do you think cross through the gates and, and they do an introduction? It's like, oh, you know, I'm cold. And, oh, I'm Hermogenes. I know you from 2 <laughs> Timothy. How would you like to go down as that guy for all of history? Uh, or Alexander the Coppersmith. It doesn't seem to me like he probably turned it around, but uh, right. he, he names some names here, which I think is important. Uh, Paul is never one to pull punches, but he's also never one to downplay how damaging people can be to the ministry of the church. Right. Um, and these two are, are an example. They turned away from him. And we don't think that, that turned away means that they just decided to do something else. We, we mean that they probably left the faith, probably were obstacles in, in ministry. And then he contrasts that with, with a guy that you've already mentioned, Onesiphorus, who often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Chapter 2 is going to talk about how to interface with difficult people and difficult doctrines in pastoral ministry and in the Christian life. So he gives him some really famous metaphors for suffering in the first couple of verses. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, you should endure suffering like a soldier, like a farmer, like an athlete. Uh, Gives him a nice, in verse 8 through 13, a nice, almost creedal, yeah. A rehearsal of the gospel. And then in verses 14 through 26 of chapter 2, he gives him some really practical advice for mediating disputes, for pastoring the people well, for uh, keeping people from getting into arguments. Um, the way that people work together in the church is a topic that that is talked about in almost every letter in the New Testament. But we get some really specific teaching here, avoiding irreverent babble, um, talk spreading like gangrene. I mean, he gets some mm-hmm. great metaphors here. The, the value of people in the church being being like vessels of gold and silver and wood and clay. And um, Paul is really coaching Timothy in this section, don't you think? I do, and I think he's helping him stay on point. Uh, this is probably one of the more relevant passages for today with social media and particularly Christians on social media. Uh, you see Paul... Basically, he's going to tell Timothy to be very bold about confronting false doctrine. But mm-hmm. in this passage, which he'll do in the next chapter, but here he's saying, uh, you mentioned this, but in verse 14, don't quarrel about words. It does no good and ruins the hearers. And then in 16, avoid irreverent babble. It leads people into more and more ungodliness. Verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. They just breed quarrels. I don't read him here talking about doctrinally important heresies. He'll talk Mm -hmm. about that in the next chapter. What he is saying is, look, don't get pulled off into the weeds, chasing Mm -hmm. down things that aren't really important. They're just going to just cause a lot of controversy. And I I find this to be really good because social media is a great place to be pulled off into the weeds and argue about words and controversies that really aren't very important. Right. This, Yeah, this is the kind of stuff where you're thinking about people arguing over the color of the drapes and, and <laughs> right. uh, carpets and, and all of that. Uh, this is something where 
Paul's advice is wise in the sense that he doesn't—he never counsels Timothy to back down on doctrine. He never, never uh, encourages him to compromise on the truth. But he always reminds him to be patient, to teach, to gain consensus as he can when it comes to the people themselves. Uh, there's, there's obviously a little bit of a difference between a contentious person and a false teacher. We see that right. dichotomy probably right. the clearest in 1 John. There's a difference between somebody that you walk with who may just be frustrating and you have to have a lot of patience with right. and somebody who is actively teaching things that are false and leading people astray. We're, we're instructed not even to eat with that person. Right. So here, Paul's giving us a lot of wisdom in how we work with other people with patience and with right. teaching and without compromising on doctrine. So uh, I love the the counsel that he gives Timothy in this last paragraph of chapter 2, flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. That's pretty mm-hmm. good pastoral and, and Christian advice, no matter what situation you're in. That's he, true. He later says, correcting opponents with gentleness, hoping, and this is, this is probably where we lose sight of the end goal, whether it's social media or in person, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's the goal. That's the goal of every quarrel and argument in the church. And so a little dose of perspective from Paul is really helpful uh, on something like that. In chapter 3, he's going to turn up the volume a little bit. We get to false teaching as opposed to difficult and argumentative people. And this this might be, I didn't research this, so I'm, I'm going to say this tentatively. This might be, with the exception of Romans, I'm thinking, the the longest and uh, most brutal vice list in the New Testament. Can you think of one that's longer than this? No, I can't. And in fact, this one that begins chapter 3 sounds a lot like the way Romans chapter 1 ends. This one might even mm-hmm. be longer. Yeah, th- I mean, he, he really lists a lot of stuff in here. And uh, it's interesting to think through the things that he points out. And, and you can read commentators who have done a word study on every single one of these. But the phrase that always strikes me at the end of this that I think is so important to think about is in verse 5. The summary statement of this whole list, after he says lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, is having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And then he says, avoid these people. So this is different than the people he's describing in chapter 2. And I think the difference is, and I think this is so practical, one of the ways that you can determine a false teacher uh, from somebody who just is is struggling to grow would be this qualification, the appearance of godliness, but a denial of the power of godliness. And so for that, we have to ask, what is the power of godliness? So this person obviously is presenting an image of doing things right. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the power of godliness that he's talking about here is the power of the Holy Spirit to actually change us into the image of Christ. Right. So these are people who are putting up the outward appearance of being conformed into Christ's image, but actually are denying that that is possible or going on in their lives. So this would be the person who um, acts good on the outside, but then when it comes to areas of sin in their life, they are denying that they actually need to change at all or that they can change at all. Right. Um, And I think that's where you get into some really dangerous things in the church is this denial of the power of God. 
I think uh, I'm going to connect these two things that in uh, you mentioned Acts chapter 20 and Paul on the way to imprisonment tells the Ephesian elders that there will be those even among you that rise up who will be wolves wearing mm-hmm. sheep's clothing. And I always think of that when I get to this passage. You're right. Yeah. They have the appearance of godliness, but there's no power of the Spirit in them working in them. They're wolves, but they have an outward uh, sheepskin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities between the... If you, if you just compared the outlines of Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders and the second half of chapter 2 through the middle of chapter 4 in Second Timothy, the outline is almost the same. So you mm-hmm. get the warnings about false teachers, and then in the beginning of chapter 4, uh, you get what a, what a lot of people identify as the main command of the entire letter, which would be preach the word, be ready yeah. in season and out of season. It reminds you of what Paul says to the Ephesian elders when he says, I, I have fulfilled my duty by preaching the entire counsel, the full counsel of God. Right. So um, I've done my job. You know, yeah. He says, like, I am innocent of the blood of everyone because I've preached the full counsel of God. That is the antidote, among other things, to the problems that he's naming both in chapter 3 here and in the beginning of that section in Acts chapter 20. Um, the other thing that goes with that, though, one of the things that differentiates Paul from false teachers or uh, just the the super apostles that he criticizes in the Corinthian letters is mm-hmm. what we see at the end of chapter 3. So in contrast to the false teachers, he tells Timothy, hey, you, though, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. And Paul knows that he's not perfect. But right. what he's saying is my life and my message match. Right. Like my life is a testament to the power of godliness. So whereas these people have appearance, but appearance only, Paul has the appearance and the reality of the power of God to change him from being the chief of all sinners, as we see in 1 Timothy, uh-huh. uh, to a person who can say, hey, man, you've seen everything. You've right. seen me when I was preaching. You've seen me when I thought nobody was looking. You've seen me when I was tired. You've mm-hmm. seen me in prison. Live that kind of life. Right. I think there's a significant pushback in Christianity, and some of this is helpful, uh, to this kind of statement from Paul. So we see this several times from Paul. In 1 Corinthians 11, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. You say, right. well, that, that's kind of arrogant. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. he, obviously everybody's human. Uh, everybody screws up. Here he's saying, hey, you've seen my life. Do that. What, how could Paul say that? Is this an arrogant thing for Paul to say? Is this something where he's a little over his skis? Is this where he's just a different level of human being than the rest of us? Is this something we should adopt into our own life and pastoral ministry? How do we, how do we read this? That's a, that's a great question. I think our first take is to say, wow, that is arrogant. He's saying, I pretty much, because we think of Christianity as conduct, and I think that's a little bit of a mistake. Uh, obviously, that's part of it. But he's clearly not saying that all my conduct was right. And yet he's bold enough to say, follow me, Im- be an imitator of me as I imitate Christ. Mm-hmm. I think the key here is he has not only taught Timothy what it looks like to behave in hard times, in good times, and he's not only done it right, but Timothy's seen him fail. But here's the key. Timothy has clearly seen him repent 
probably heard him apologize before, has seen him continue to go into town after town, even though he had the expectation of being beaten or something bad happened. I think when I read it, that's what I say is, hey, you just imitate me. You be so devoted to Christ that no matter what, not external circumstances nor your own shortcomings will keep you from clinging to Christ and following him. The key mm-hmm. thing for me, and I don't recall this anywhere else in the New Testament, in verse 10 of chapter 3, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. That's a key phrase to me mm-hmm. because what he's really saying to Timothy is, you just keep following the path toward Christ that I have followed, and as imperfectly as perhaps I have followed it. Paul, as you said, says mm-hmm. that you know he used to be the worst of sinners. And Christ was gracious to him, and now look at him. I I really think we should be saying this to others. We should say, pursue Christ. Maybe this is an easier way to say it for us. Pursue Christ as I have pursued Christ. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean to say that, hey, behave like I did in every circumstance. That's a little simplistic. But pursue Christ with the same fervor that I did. Yeah, you make a great point there because we typically jump straight to action. Do the things that I have done. There is an element to that. And sure. I, I think there's something to be said for living a life, especially if you're a leader in ministry, of saying, yeah, do the stuff that I do. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean everything. That doesn't mean, you know, I mean, it, when we say that, there's an acknowledgement of sin. Right. But striving to live a life that other people can look at and say, if you do the things that I do, then you'll be in pretty good shape. Yeah. But there's actually a deeper level that's even more important than that where Paul is saying, pursue Christ the way I have pursued him. I think about the language in Philippians there, forgetting what is behind, I strain towards the goal. Uh You see that again in chapter 4. We use this phrase a lot when we talk about people's lives. I don't see very many people using this phrase about their own life, and maybe we should think more about that. He says confidently, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. It's not arrogant to say that if what you mean by that is I have pursued Christ and I have depended on him. Both of those things together. Because if you notice at the end of that verse 11, after, after he says that in verse 10 of chapter 3, he says, uh, you've seen all of this and the persecutions that I endured, yet, and he doesn't say here like, uh, yet I was able to grip my teeth and, and, and bear uh-huh. through it because I'm so awesome. He says, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. And we're going to see that again, actually, later in chapter 4, verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. The thing that I think is most uh, imitatable about Paul is his pursuit of Christ, which includes constant repentance and Mm -hmm. his uh, knowledge of his own sin. But then, too, a dependence, a complete and total dependence. I'm thinking of passages like... Uh, Colossians 1, at the end of Colossians 1, where he says, you know, we're doing all of this and we want to present people blameless with all the energy that God has given us to work with, all this energy that he works in us, or where he says, uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling Uh because God is the one who works in you both to will and to work for his glory. So for Paul, it was this two-sided uh, thing of pursuit and dependence that I think he's calling Timothy to. And that's something I think we need to call people to in our own lives. Oh, um, and if we can't, if we can't do that, then what a great opportunity to examine why not. 
What is it about our pursuit, not our perfection, that we mm-hmm. wouldn't call people to imitate? Uh, and, and that's something that we, we can actually work on and take before the Lord and talk to him about. So he calls Timothy to follow him in that way. And then in chapter four, he's going to begin to wrap things up a little bit. This is where Paul gets a little autobiographical thinking about his own life. And we get some really tender sections mm-hmm. about what's going on in Paul's life. What, what, what are your favorite parts of, of chapter four? Oh, I love chapter four in general. Uh, I love the charge at the beginning. I charge you. This is his conclusion, having said all of this, to preach the word, to be ready. And he said, and he warns him, the time is coming, verse three, when people won't endure sound teaching. Nevertheless, be bold. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, of course, verse six is the famous passage. And if, if I had a life verse, which I don't, I don't believe in life verses, but if I did, this would be it. Uh, I love this image. Hot take. Yeah. I love this image because in ancient times they would pour a libation to the gods. In other words, before you Mm -hmm. drank, we we say grace. They would take their cup, pour a little of uh, the water or soda or wine, I guess in their case, on the ground as saying, I'm going to give a little bit to the gods first. And so Paul references that and he says, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. And I've always had this image in my mind. I remember playing sports and uh, you guys playing sports when you were growing up. The good coaches would tell you, don't leave anything on the field. In other words, when you come off the mm-hmm. field, you may have won, you may have lost, but you're not going to look back and say, you know, I still have energy left. Maybe if I tried a little harder on some of those plays. In other words, you kind of want to walk off the field going, I think I left everything out there on the field. And that's what I hear Paul saying here is I, I don't mm-hmm. know if I would, I certainly didn't do everything perfectly. I don't know how successful, but I'll tell you what, I was faithful and I left everything on the field. Mm-hmm. It's a good way to put it. Uh, he, he clearly has a sense that he has completed the job that God has given to him. And, and because of that, he knows in verse eight, henceforth, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He he has a hope of what's coming, uh, getting to see Christ, getting to be with him. And, you know, the reason for that, you've already hit this, but I'd like to do it one more time. When he says, the time of my departure has come, I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. You know, here's what he doesn't say. It's time for me to come, and I've planted so many churches, it isn't funny. And so many people know Mm -hmm. Christ because of me, and I just found out that they're going to publish all my letters in this book called the Bible. Uh And, you know, I mean, he doesn't say anything about what was achieved. He says, I finished. I kept the faith. In other words, he said, I was faithful. I'll let God judge how useful it is. Mm -hmm. And I love that. And that's how he can then say, henceforth, there is a uh, laid up for me a crown of righteousness. His certainty about the crown of righteousness does not depend on how successful he was. He mm-hmm. he rests it completely, and you you uh, referenced this when you talked about his dependence on his faithfulness to God. Yeah, that's a good lesson that's, for us. That, that that is the resounding note at the end of this. Is even though he's being abandoned by his friends, uh, we see. Luke is, is the only one, the beloved physician is the only one with him at this point. 
Um, he has endured hardship from Alexander the coppersmith. Uh, he, at his first trial, nobody was there with him, uh, but he knows that the Lord was there standing by him and he was rescued mm-hmm. and he will be rescued. Uh, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That really is the resounding note on the end of Paul's life is the Lord has rescued him and will bring him safely. The final couple of lines of this letter are interesting. Uh, Greek Prisca and Aquila, the household of Onesiphorus, Erastus remained at Corinth. He's giving some tactical things here. Uh-huh. Do your best to come before winter, uh, which would have been miserable in oh, the, the yeah. situation he was in. Uh, <clears throat> Eubulus sends greetings. Putin's Linus Claudia. We don't know a lot about these people, uh, but the Lord be with your spirit. And then before that, I'll say, the, the, the famous thing is uh, that he's asked him to bring the cloak and the books, and, and yeah. he wants him to come in verse 13 of, of chapter 4. But he, he expects to see him or at least hopes to see him again. Uh-huh. But I think the resounding note at the end of Paul's life is probably that verse 18 of chapter 4, uh, that, that he is depending on the Lord for rescue. He expects to see him. He's confident as to where he's going, and, and um, he understands that his life's goal is to give glory to God forever. What, what final thoughts do you have on 2 Timothy? You know, I, I, every time I read 2 Timothy in my devotional reading, it just kind of chokes me up a little bit. Being in the stage of life that I'm in, Paul was probably, oh, about my age, or at least certainly that stage mm-hmm. of life. Uh, you know, hopefully I'm, I'm not going to get executed here anytime soon. But the point is you're looking at the next generation to carry on yeah. what you have started. And I mean that in the faith. I don't mean that necessarily in the business. That certainly does happen. But there is this sense of transmitting the faith from generation to generation. And that's the sense mm-hmm. that hits me. And we now, we know the rest of the story. We know that as successful right. as the Holy Spirit was in using Paul, it is only a seed of what has flowered today. And looking back, I think that encourages me to never lose hope in the face of a culture that looks so, so lost that, uh, and handing it into a generation about whom you're just so, have so much anxiety. He had to have had a lot of anxiety about Timothy. Like, Timothy, I'm not going to be with you anymore and be faithful and continue to do what I've done. And uh, you just can pray that he sees the end of that story, and you know that he does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think my, my final thought is, is similar. I, I will never forget, I was listening to a lecture from uh, Greg Beal, and he, this was before the lecture even started, he was praying, and I think this line of his prayer perfectly summarizes the end of this letter. He, he's praying, and as he wraps up the prayer, he says, Lord, and we pray that the winds of your grace will blow us safely into the harbors of the New Jerusalem. Oh, wow. And that, that is Paul's life to a T, that the uh-huh. winds of his grace would bring him safely into the harbors of the New Jerusalem. That's how he lived. That's how he died. And uh, that's how we end the book of 2 Timothy is with that hope, that pursuit and that dependence from Paul, passing that on to Timothy, knowing that he will arrive safely in the heavenly kingdom of God and give him glory forever. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.